Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. If you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. On its way to becoming a household name, the dismemberment plan packed it in. Now, more than a decade later, they're back. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. The reunited dismemberment plan join us in the studio. Then, Greg and I review the second Broken Bells collaboration between James Mercer of the Shins and Danger Mouse. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, Jim, later on in the show, we're going to be talking to the members of the Reunited Dismemberment Plan, or the D-Plan, as their fans call them. Great band out of the Washington, D.C. area in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, broke up before they started to make any bad records, so fans were absolutely brokenhearted when they went. And they were contemporaries of, like, Death Cab for Cutie or The Shins. You wonder what would have happened had they just stuck around for a few more years instead of breaking up. Oh, absolutely. Great band, but first, some music news. Greg, that is Daft Punk performing Get Lucky on the Grammy Awards telecast with a lot of special guests, Stevie Wonder, Pharrell Williams, Nile Rodgers. It was one of the rare Grammy performances of unlikely superstar pairings that actually worked. I mean, really, Robin Thicke and Chicago, did the world need that? I don't think so. However, I think it's interesting to note this year that Daft Punk winning five Grammys, uh, it really represents a bit of a sea change because you have to go all the way back to 1979 and Saturday Night Fever to find a dance album that claimed any of those big prizes at the Grammys. The Grammys really have turned a deaf ear to electronic dance music for the last two and a half decades, and it has been one of the primary stories. The fact that Daft Punk, in Paul Williams' words, you know, very generous, sharing that album, Random Access Memories, with so many other artists, it's really kind of an establishment thing. Nile Rodgers is on that record. Paul Williams, you know, Mm -hmm. the man who wrote all those wonderful schlocky 70s songs, Giorgio Moroder, and it comes out on an American major label, you know. So it really is, you know, the Grammys always love to honor an industry success story, and this really was part of the mainstream. It certainly isn't cutting-edge dance music, but hopefully that'll open things up for future Grammy Awards. I ain't scared of your jail cause I want my freedom. I want my freedom. I want my freedom. I ain't scared of your jail cause I want my freedom. I want my freedom now. That is, I Ain't Scared of Your Jail is performed by Pete Seeger, the great folk singer. 
died at the age of 94 a few days ago. A true legend. I mean, one of the central figures of American music in the 20th century, without a doubt. And uh, Seeger very nearly went to jail in the uh, early 60s. He had a lot of trouble with the U.S. government because of his affiliations to uh, the Communist Party and the radical messages he was sending out in his music. In the 50s, those were fighting words that they could get you in a lot of trouble. The House on American Activities Committee was investigating him. They subpoenaed him. Eventually, he was indicted for contempt and was sentenced to prison, but that was overturned in the early 60s. Nonetheless, he continued to make great music. He was a true Johnny Appleseed of folk music. He was spreading these songs around the country, everything from children's songs to union rallies. Seeger's songs are known by everyone. It's interesting that uh, President Clinton, uh, that great music scholar, once said he's an inconvenient artist who dared to sing things as he saw them, sang it like he lived it. And here's another example of that. When he did finally make his way back to national television on the Smothers Brothers show, this is the song he chose to perform. The first time he tried to perform it, he was censored. They said, wait a minute, you can't do that on national television. The Smothers Brothers complained, you know, you can't censor Pete Seeger. And then Seeger eventually came on the show a few months later in early 68 and performed it. It is a protest song. It is a song talking about our involvement in Vietnam at the height of the Vietnam War. This is Waist Deep in the Big Muddy from Pete Seeger on Sound Opinions. The sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on, I fought at this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging. We'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy. The big fool says to push on. Well, the sergeant said, sir, with all this equipment, no man will be able to swim. Sergeant, don't be a nervous, Nelly. The captain said to him, all we need is a little... Determination, men, follow me, I'll lead on. We were neck deep in the big muddy, the big fools has to push on. All at once, the moon clouded over, we heard a gurgling cry. A few seconds later, the captain's helmet was all that floated by. The sergeant said, turn around, men, I'm in charge from now on. And we just made it out of the big muddy with the captain dead and gone. We stripped and dived and found his body stuck in the old quicksand. I guess he didn't know that the water was deeper than the place he'd once before been. Another stream had joined the big muddy about a half mile from where we'd gone. We were lucky to escape from the big muddy when the big fool said to push on. Well, I'm not going to point any moral, I'll leave that for yourself. Maybe you're still walking, you're still talking, you'd like to keep your health. But every time I read the paper, them old feelings come on. We're waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. That was Waist Deep deep in the Big big Muddy muddy by Pete Seeger, dead at the age of 94. Do you have any thoughts about Pete Seeger to share on Sound Opinions? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. What about the Grammys? Do you think they got it right this year? Again, call 888-859-1800. Fool says to push on. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's a song called What Do You Want Me to Say by our guests this week, The Dismemberment Plan. The D.C. bass band includes Eric Axelson on bass, Jason Cadell on guitar, Joe Easley on drums, and Travis Morrison on vocals and guitar. They came together in 1993, and fans have been waiting for them to reunite for more than a decade now. The band called it quits in 2003 at the height of its popularity, and its members went on to work for a number of surprising gigs. Uh, Travis at the Washington Post, and easily a robotics engineer at NASA, where he continues to work. The new record, Uncanny Valley, is a return to the dismemberment plant's trademark sound, that mix of genres. You know, of course, there's emo and punk and indie rock, but there's also the funk of DC's go-go scene and even a little bit of hip-hop in there. So when I sat down with them in our studio, Jim unfortunately wasn't able to join us that day, I began our conversation by asking Eric Axelson if the Sonic Mix was there from the start. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I feel like someone recently called us uh, omnivorous. I feel like we kind of listen to a wide variety of styles, and it kind of comes out in one big funnel in our songwriting. So I feel like because we like go-go, and we like alt-country, and we like punk, all those bands kind of fusing together, I think was kind of our early strange sound that we came up with. Was it the intent to sort of, well, we, we already know what's out there, we, we definitely want to put our own imprint on it? We're, yeah, we're not a big intent band. <laughs> yeah, just can't escape who we are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, a friend of mine talked about how our early shows were exciting but also really terrifying because the way he put it was like, they were just working it out on stage. <laughs> what was it like for the audience? Was, was it like, where were these guys coming from? Or was we're not sure we weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one threw stuff at us. No, we didn't. I think people kind of cocked their heads, but I think we were just kind of one more around the way weirdo mm-hmm. in, a, in an environment that I think people don't give enough credit for having supported around the way weirdos. I think it actually was pretty friendly. It sounded like there was more collaboration maybe in the band than people realized. I mean, I know you're kind huh. of viewed as the songwriter and the guy who right. sings the songs, but it seemed like couldn't have happened without these four guys putting their pieces together in these this, songs. This feels like one of those, like, when did you stop beating your wife questions. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to take it that way, uh, okay. you're my guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're a collective group. I mean, I write the lyrics. You know, there's some people who are like, you know, the singer, like the singer, the voice is just another instrument. And I'm like, no way, Jose. I'm Travis Morrison. Uh, you're going to hear me. So I think I poke out of the soundscape. But yes, as a band, it's intensely, intensely it's as, it's as collaborative as The National or Zeppelin or any other band I would think of that's, that mostly works from the ground up instrumentally. All right, we've got the dismemberment plan here with us at Sound Opinions. They're going to play some songs for us. What are we going to hear first? Uh, we're going to hear The City.
That's the city from the dismemberment plan on Sound Opinions. Um, going back for that one. Yes. One of those songs that survived from the first incarnation of the band, and you can still look at that song and say, yeah, we dig that. We'll play that. Yeah, that's right. Survived the 90s. Yeah. Do you look back on that stuff and st- it, it still works for you? It's weird. There's kind of a little old man quality to a lot <laughs> of our songs that actually, they, they, they have a little bit of built-in perspective that as a singer... And and it was a when I, two years ago when we started playing shows again I was like boy I hope this doesn't feel weird and it didn't and I think in large part it's because of that. Did you feel like you were writing songs for longevity or was it just it was in the moment and here it was? I think I think it was just in the moment. Yeah, but you know I don't know like maybe as a lyricist like I was listening to the replacements and like my family my mother's family is from Minnesota and you know they're like you know it's not so bad. Mm. And, you know, you can just hear that Minnesota mindset in those replacement songs, you know, <laughs> they're like uh, as as emotional it gets they make a flippant joke or they pull back a little bit, you know, and I think that's why there's so much heart in it over the decade. I, not that we got anywhere near what the replacements did, but I don't know, maybe, maybe the, the songwriting influence of my mother. <laughs> <laughs> guys had a uh, I would say a trajectory where where you were generally in the ascent you put out the 2001 change record around that time you did a big tour with death cab for cutie things were starting to to pick up for you and then you broke up at that point and it seemed to be right on that cusp you were in that sort of wave of bands that came out that started to enjoy popularity just as this little thing called the internet was exploding and in a way, maybe a missed opportunity, because if you'd hung around a couple more years, you know, could a death cab for cutie type of arena rock future been, <laughs> been there? You know, do you or, ever think about that sort of or thing? Or we might have ended up late 30s, club circuit, diminishing <laughs> yeah. returns, yeah. uninspired. It's kind of yeah. funny how many dinner parties I've been at where I've been asked that question, like, do you wish you'd stuck around for like two more years? <laughs> and I think the answer's always no. I mean, I think we hung up, up at a good time. Yeah. Like, you know, we were kind of at a point where everyone agreed it was the right time to stop, like... It wasn't quite right, so we did, and you know, and yeah. we're back, it feels right again, so here we are. I like my coffee black and my night, yeah. Coming up after the break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more of Greg's conversation with the dismemberment plan. Then we'll review the new album from Broken Bells. Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. 
Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you've been listening to my conversation with the members of the D.C.-based Dismemberment Plan. Now, Jim, you couldn't make it, but I couldn't resist having the band in the studio after more than a 10-year hiatus. The impetus was Barsook Records reissuing the 1999 album Emergency and I. And after dipping a toe in with a few celebratory shows, Eric Axelson, Jason Cadell, Joe Easley, and Travis Morrison decided to jump in and record an entirely new album called Uncanny Valley. Bassist Eric Axelson tells us more. Yeah, I mean, it was going to be five shows, and suddenly the demand was kind of crazy, so we added five more, and then we went to Japan for a week, and then did some festivals. And in those shows, like, we kept kind of noodling around during soundcheck, and, like, you know, Jason would pull out his phone and record a riff or record a beat. And then the last show happened in July, and uh, we were like, hey, so next month we want to meet back in D.C. and just have fun and bring some toys and make some noise, and mm-hmm. uh, we did. There was no, at that point, there was no more shows booked. There was no talk of doing a record. We just got in the basement at Joe's house for three days and had fun, and it, that was kind of the seed that suddenly was like, eh, we'll just write songs for a while and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. And, I, mean, uh, I, I cracked a joke before about us being a band that's free of intent, but it, it really is true. I mean, when we got together initially during that time, there we didn't have any expectations set or, or any agenda or grand scheme. Uh, it was purely experimental, and I think that that experiment experimentality is that a word <laughs> experimentalness Experimentalism, we'll yeah right yeah is a big part of the way that we uh make the stuff that we make like we're we're tinkerers in our own kind of special way Well, on, on on the technical side of it, but there there are definitely chops at play here, and I don't think that was always something that was celebrated in the underground scene, the indie scene, the punk scene, whatever whatever things you want to associate with the kind of music you guys did. When I would listen to your records, I almost thought like you know if this happened in the seventies, they'd be calling it progressive rock, <laughs> you know. Oh. 
except it was concise. Well, there were songs. I mean, in a w- if you think about it, we were kind of the Asia of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, yes. Man. Some math. Yeah. You weren't that bad. No, but you were. We were GTR. Thank you, sir. <laughs> you were totally t- well played, sir. But you were, well played. But, you know, three, four minute songs within that. So it seemed like there was all these cool little things happening in the songs that would just be on kind of verse chorus and, you know, a bridge. It was It was a little bit more complicated than that. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is I can imagine coming back to these songs a few years later, you probably had to re- do some serious l- relearning just to remember all the stuff that was going on. Or, yeah. Am I wrong about I'm, that? Well, I mean, there's, on our first record, there's guitar stuff is so demented that there's just <laughs> no way. It almost sounds random. It almost I mean, just really sounds like people hitting their guitars. <laughs> Two days later, still coming up, but I sat down to write this letter with a clearer head and a heart full of lead. I don't think we're so much complicated as in, I think we're in that tradition of punk rock bands who took punk as like a license to be like musically questing, like mm. Minutemen, Sonic Youth, like Beefeater. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the Ramones. The Ramones are, are an incredible thing. But I don't know if we took from that side of the tracks as much as things like Minutemen and Sonic Youth. And also we grew up with rap, which was just doing the strangest things with sound. Mm-hmm. You know? We're also, we're an intensely curious crew. Like, and I think, I say that not just in terms of music, but in life. Like, we're all kind of investigators and people that like to sort of look under rocks uh, in various <laughs> contexts, which in many cases has gone on to sort of inform our careers. And in that way, like when Travis mentioned the Ramones, I feel like there are some bands that start from a stylistic pose and that that pose is as much of their art as the music is and that it creates a, a whole package. We never had that. Like we didn't see the dismemberment plan in our heads ahead of time and nor do we sort of see it visually now, I don't believe. I mean, we we really, it is from almost a purely musical and like, what does this button do? Mm. Kind of activity that this all, all this stuff springs from. There was, there was all sorts of things in those records, and uh, before we get to another song, there was one other anecdote that a fan of yours mentioned to me. I guess there was some brass on, on one of your songs, and apparently you were uh, unable to play that uh, in shows, and a, a, a fan actually brought <laughs> the instrument trombone. to you at a show, yeah. a trombone, yeah. so that you could play that one yeah. specific song. <laughs> true story. <laughs> Is that a true story? Yeah, yeah. On one of, one of our first tours, I, I played the trombone so hard, and I had bronchitis the whole tour, that I tore the lining around my lung. Ooh. And it was, it was a crazy experience. Like, the rest of the tour, like, I was, like, on, on painkillers and beer. 
I was going to say, Basically. torn long doesn't sound like a, something not, that a lead singer in well, a band should. <laughs> not quite the long, but the like, it's like, uh, it's peristatum, the lining around it yeah. or something. I mean, you know, you're, you're 21, you're like, I'm on tour. Mm. Nothing <laughs> will stop this. Yeah. And so if every breath is untold agony, and that's just part of the, the, the you know, cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> We're here with the Dismemberment Plan on Sound Opinions, and uh, they are ready to play another song. What are we going to have? We're going to do the first song for the new record. It's called No One's Saying Nothing.
No one's saying nothing from the dismemberment plan on Sound Opinions. That's from the new album, Uncanny Valley. Feels good to say the new dismemberment plan album. So, Travis, you were sort of messing around with some falsetto vocals right before you guys started doing that, and it reminded me that you had that sort of soul R&B thing in your music from the start, it, yeah. you know, just in terms of your attitude about it. You're, as a singer, more flamboyant than your traditional quote-unquote indie rock guy from the 90s, you know? Yeah. It's very serious, dour, usually associated with that sort of area of music. And you were a little more free about that sort of thing right from the start. I mean, yeah. bringing some hip-hop attitude, some R&B attitude into, <laughs> right. into it, if, if not exactly sounding like that, but the right. attitude. When did sort of, that sort of creep into your uh, love oh, of music? Well, my father took me aside, <laughs> <laughs> said, son. <Yeah. laughs> you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so majority black city, so you're going to be hearing a lot of that stuff. A lot of my first childhood memories of songs that really stuck out to me are of African-American music. I, my very, the very first song I remember really startling me was in the backseat of my car, my mother's car, hearing Give It To Me by Rick James. And I thought it was like, <laughs> whoa, this is weird. I like what's happening. This doesn't sound like that St- other stuff my mom listens to. And I don't know why my mother was listening to Rick James. Um, <laughs> we'll just we'll just move forward from I that. Know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably grown up in Washington, and and generally being attracted maybe to rock and roll singers who maybe even if they're white are pretty like open, like John Lennon, you know, who are like language based. I wasn't really particularly blessed with a particularly mellifluous or melodic voice. Like, there's a melody there, but you might have to squint to make it out. But it's there. But I, I just don't have one of those physical instruments that's like super glowing and luscious and melodic and Luther Vandrossy, you know? Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, that's out. Luther Vandross is out. <laughs> <laughs> what, what direction can I go in with this? Yeah. And yeah, you know, I guess like I just like rhythm and I like like language and I like the interplay of rhythm and language. And if there's some melody there, that, that'll that be great. But I just triangulated between people like John Lennon and, um, you know, rappers a little bit Chuck D, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, people I could kind of work off of. I didn't really want to be the singer of the Dismemberment Plan, but we couldn't find anybody. <laughs> so it was kind of like, well, I guess I got to figure this out. There was no time or location. There was really no info at all. No date, no place, no time, no RSVP. But it said you are invited by anyone to do anything. You are invited for all time. The reason I'm sort of bringing it up is because the flamboyance is, I think, one of those areas that wasn't really well accepted in your world. But but it's interesting to me how those walls have broken down. Have you sort of seen that as well? That maybe some of that line in the sand business between pop and R&B and soul and indie is collapsed? I mean, I I get, going back to the early 90s and the kind of thing that Nirvana summed up, like, I I, I get what rock and rollers were up against in the Reagan era. You know, uh, Mm. tough times. Uh, I see why Black Flag sounded the way they sounded. There was a lot to negate because things were pretty weird. So... I think we were like a little more optimistic and far-reaching than that. Rap had we grew up with rap, and so it gave us a little more sense of the possible. But you know that that negation that we didn't have too much in common with, I respect it. 
I, I totally, I listen to Black Flag. I'm like, this would be the only proper response in 1987 America. You know, I, I'm with it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it didn't quite sound like what the plan was about, you know, five or six years later. Do you sense that stuff coming into what you're doing now on, on the new record, on Uncanny Valley? We've finally woken up to the, the evils of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. But in terms of the R&B and soul stuff, how do you feel that filtering in at all to this record in terms of how you made it? I think it's a part of the larger canvas for sure. I find, uh, find it incredibly fortuitous and a huge moment in my life discovering hip-hop and R&B. Speaking of a girl named Susie, said she'd do anything to suit me. Take off clothes or put them back on. Ain't that right, wise? Word is born. Coming from the show, she was always there. It's like we couldn't get her out of our hair. She would even follow us late at night. Right, Delight? Yo, believe the hype. And there was a question of how they made those sounds. Oh, totally. Like the rock band, like, I, I know what they did. But you're sure. hearing, I don't know, like Stetsasana, like talking about a girl named Susie. Susie, yeah, Susie, yeah, yeah. Talking about a girl named Susie. And you're like, how did they make these sounds? How did this go down? Like, I, a rock band, I get, but this is like... And your and your thing about language too from earlier, like think about listening to De La Soul records, yeah, and being like there was a whole vocabulary that they invented right. that I literally, yeah. I mean, it was like taking apart a puzzle. Jason, I can hear it in your guitar playing because um, if you were to isolate the guitar parts on Dismemberment Plan records, it would be like this abstract sort of thing. <laughs> you go, what is that exactly? But it sort of fits, like the the puzzle sort of fits, and that has that sort of collage style hip hop early James Brown type stuff, you know, where, where you're, you're hearing this guitar sort of on a, in another plane. Sort of and, recontextualized. Yeah. Absolutely. So it does sort of filter in. No, it, it definitely does filter its way in. I think on this record, like, I always write to us, you know, and what I write to us is not necessarily going to be what I would write to a different band that I was in. Um, and, it, you know, that just goes back to the collaborative nature of the enterprise. I mean, I'm really playing off of these guys and trying to make a comfortable bed for Travis's melodies if that's what's called for and like it's like a waterbed it's like a waterbed with uh, gross silk silk sheets right and then there's the the whole point the um the very important part of being able to play it repeatedly so that (laughs) that that definitely comes into it one time on tape right remember the chords then you have to sample yourself if you can't remember it oh i've done it yeah my phone has videos i assure you all that studio trickery coming on the stage, yeah, that's pretty right. cool. Because uh, you guys basically do it with four guys. I mean, yeah. you do kind oh, yeah. of have yeah. these elaborate arrangements and I mean, seem s- to replicate it. Sampling has been a huge part of the the way that we can pull some of this stuff off. We're not like a... There will always be a little bit, I think, of music technology, of like the Ferris Bueller playing the <laughs> totally. sneeze sound on the <laughs> <Yep>. sampler. <laughs> yep. Think you'll be alive this weekend? <coughs> <coughs> I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where there were this well-oiled, sequenced machine Production. that takes up the entire club. Yeah, I think thing. other yeah, other bands bring in this like insane Cylon mind that takes over the entire club. <laughs> there will always be a little bit like, <laughs> <laughs> messing around, just like hands on a keyboard. Like, yeah. Oh, this is fun. Hence the uh, you know the punk rock DNA. Yeah, you can't take so. that away either. Yeah. So. Uh, you're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here with the Dismemberment Plan. Um, we have another song, guys. Yeah, should I go over here? 
Yeah, uh, you want to do Daddy? Oh, yeah. 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 What are we gonna uh, hear? On that tip, we're going to play kind of a southeastern guitar rock ballad with piano. <laughs> <laughs> What's it called? Just to show you that we can do anything. It's called Daddy Was a Real Good Dancer. Daddy was a real good dancer from the Dismemberment Plan on Sound Opinions. I love that song. There's got to be a story behind that one, Travis. It's not like my own dad. I mean, he he passed away when I was 24, 
he was a he was kind of a competition dancer in Florida in high school in the late fifties. Mm-hmm. So those are the true aspects of it, I suppose. Um, but of course, there's always kind of like the Freudian mystery of who your your parents were before they had you. I guess there was a couple of things that sparked me off. I, I learned about Charles Darwin, how he went out on the Beagle for 10 years and then came home and never left his manor again and had like a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. Totally different guy now. <laughs> a story, Brian Eno told a story about how he found out his dad played drums in a band uh, when Brian Eno was like 45, like way late in life. He was like, isn't it funny that I came from this non-musical family and look at me and they're like, what do you mean? Your father played drums in a band. <laughs> and he was like... Eh, I'm Brian Eno. You need to tell me these things. And like, <laughs> it never came up. <laughs> right, <laughs> Which, you right. know, is kind of a classic conversation with your dad. Right. I, you know, I don't know. It just, it never came up. I, I never made the connection. Like, mm. I, I think we all have those family stories. And, and you're right. It's very relatable. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, my grandfather was a, like an Olympic diver, and I didn't know Whoa. that until like, he was dying. <laughs> awesome. You know, I mean, right. he was on his deathbed, and I found out that story, right. you know, that kind of thing. So, Greg, and, I need to tell you something. Yes, there's something I need to tell you. And That's awesome. And, and, That's and you made that, right. and there's that line in the song about, I hope the people who love me know me better than right. I knew, the, you know, right. these but people you who know, preceded me. you're not going to know everything. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderfully poignant song. Thank you. It's been our pleasure to have uh, the dismemberment plan on Sound Opinions. Eric, Joe, Jason, Travis, thanks for, so much for coming in, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for having us. To watch video of the dismemberment plan in the Sound Opinions studios, visit our new website at soundopinions.org. To comment on this week's show or anything in the world of music, call us at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I give a buy it, try it, or trash it rating to the new album from the collaboration of the Shins frontman, James Mercer, and super producer, Brian Burton, a.k.a. Danger Mouse.
back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a little bit of the track Holding On For Life from After The Disco, the second album by Broken Bells. Greg, supergroup is really an overused word. And this really isn't a group. It's a duo. But they certainly are super. James Mercer is, of course, best known as the driving force, the vocalist, the songwriter, the man who is the shins. While Brian Burton... Danger Mouse is perhaps one of the most talented producers of his generation, perhaps the Brian Eno of his generation, okay? These guys came together in 2009 and began working in Burton's home studio in Los Angeles on a project that would become known as Broken Bells. The album came out in 2010, turned a lot of heads, got a lot of people excited, and now it's been four long years since they got together again for another collaboration. We didn't even know if it would ever be coming. Here it is. After the disco is out, it's the second go-round for Mercer and Burton. Let's play a track from it, and we'll come back and give our opinions and rate it on our new scale of buy it, try it, trash it. This is the title track, After the Disco, by Broken Bells on Sound Opinions. After the Disco, the title track from the second Broken Bells studio album, James Mercer and Brian Burton basically recording this entire album by themselves. Two of the great talents of the last decade in indie music, for sure. And I've admired so much of the music that they've made uh, separately and, and together. There were parts of that first album that I loved quite a bit. This is an aptly titled album, and a lot of people might have thought, well, the word disco is in there, so they must be making their dance move. No, it's after the disco. This whole idea of what happens in those wee hours of the morning after you've been out dancing 
and partying. What we have here, Jim, is Broken Bell's version of a mood album. It is a chill-out record. It is not a dance record. There are some dance beats on this record, but it's essentially a, a song cycle meant to be listened to in a darkened room by yourself when you're in a particularly moody type of mood that day. Lovely pop songs in the first half of the album. These guys are really good with melody. They're really good at layering things, but the invention wears really thin in the second half of the record. Those songs start to feel like they're going nowhere. Yep, it's a mood album, all right. You got that whistling at the end of The Angel and the Fool. You know, you can just see the guy you know, rolling home after a long night, and he's by himself. But the songs start to peter out. What I think they do really well, especially on the first album, they were packing these three-minute songs with surprises. There were turns, there were new flavors in the arrangement almost every few seconds. These songs seem to be a little bit more static to me. They announce themselves, they're promising starts, they get a few ideas out, and then they never really go anywhere, especially in the second half of the record. I think if they'd taken the best parts of After the Disco and combined it with the best parts of Broken Bell's self-titled debut album in 2010, you would have had a great album. But taken on its own terms, After the Disco is a try-it album. Wow, I think you're being unnecessarily harsh on it, Greg, and I think you took the wrong turn. I think you were misled by that title, because this is the year of a lot of alternative heroes turning towards the dance floor, trying to go electronic. Look at what happened with Arcade Fire, right? I don't hear it so much as a chill-out record or an after-night-of-dancing record as I do a soul record. I think the influence here is like The weekend, and I think that what Mercer is doing as a singer on this album is really extraordinary. Now, we know he has a great voice, unlike so many people. People in indie rock or alternative rock, he really can sing. But he hasn't really sung before in this genre, I don't think so much. And the first Broken Bells album I heard as pretty much a typical collection of Mercer songs, wonderful pop gems that Brian Burton, Danger Mouse, put through the Another Green World Brian Eno filter with all those wonderful analog synths, right? And it was good. It was really good. But I think that here they're trying something different. They don't 100% succeed, but we haven't heard Danger Mouse make this kind of a dark soul record. Little bits and pieces, maybe, with Gnarls Barkley. But a sustained mood record, a song cycle, as you said, I think it's very soulful and very introspective, and and a really wonderful record that grew with me the more I listened to it. So, Greg, you were at a try it, but I like it more than you. I'm a full-on buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to focus on great music by couples in honor of Valentine's Day. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Adam Yaffe recorded the dismemberment plan. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. And I, I got to make one more comment about the Grammys on the way out. Paul Williams had the line of the night. I got sober, and then I got a call to make a record with some robots. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, my name is Mike Shu. I'm calling from Worcester, Massachusetts, and I listened to your podcast on the Bermuda Triangle, which I thought was fantastic. You touched on a lot of great stuff that's gone missing, but I particularly enjoyed you talking about Loud Lucy. 
who I was very surprised to hear about. I was just searching for them the night before I listened to your podcast, so it was very surprising that they came up, and I'm glad there's somebody else out there who still enjoys their music. And just to add, you've also recruited another fan for these she-creatures. So thanks a lot. Hi, it's Tammy. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm 63 years old. I am calling in response to your question about bands that have disappeared one of my favorite bands was The Refreshment. So just how far down do you want to go? Well, we could talk it out over a cup of joe And you could look deep into my eyes Like I was a supermodel Uh-huh They had a hit song, which to me was not the best of what they had And I read on their little website an explanation about why they weren't together anymore and they expressed something like the people who were recording them wanted them to go in a different direction. Well, that sounds kind of, I don't know, like they've covered up some deeper problem. I don't know what, but I just hated that they quit. I just thought they were great, you know, and I just I'm so upset that they're not a band anymore. Oh, well, that's all I wanted to say and I like your show. It makes a lot. Bye. Hey, my name is Ali Maharab. I'm from Portland, Oregon. I'm listening to your show about Bermuda Triangle bands, and I wanted to bring up my favorite in a very recent find, a band called Suck Patch. They were out of Minneapolis, but their label couldn't actually make it past the uh, indie rock barrier, and they kind of fell into obscurity, and they disappeared. I don't know why. Their music's wonderful. It's incredibly relevant today. Take care, you guys. Love the show. Hey, this is Ted, and I listen to WFPK Louisville, Kentucky. Want to respond to the Beatles. Well, I guess I'm pretty much an early Beatles guy. I don't discount the stuff that the guys during are doing now individually either, but even Ringo, God love him, he inspired me to learn the drums, and uh, now that he's straight, he can actually hit the notes. But everybody remembers how down we were at the end of 1960. The whole nation was bummed out. No matter what you thought of President Kennedy, it was just a horrible, horrible thing. I'm 11 years old at the time when I see this, these strange English guys on Cronkite, then the Ed Sullivan show and everything started to happen, and I'm trying to survive the sixth grade, which I hated, by the way. And these guys just lifted our spirits. They made us feel good. And for that, boys, thank you. I remain gratefully yours. Take care, guys. Enjoyed it. 
No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.